This is The Podlight, a podcast by San Jose Spotlight dedicated to independent political and business reporting. I'm your host, Editor Nick Preciado. It's less than a month until California's primary election, and multiple seats are up for grabs in San Jose and Santa Clara County as a whole. The hottest local race of the season is for San Jose Mayor, where a county supervisor, three city council members, a retired cop, and San Jose State student are all seeking the higher office. Joining me to discuss this election season are Garrett Percival and Terry Christensen. Garrett Percival is a professor and chair of the political science department at San Jose State. He teaches courses in local politics, public policy, and California government. Terry Christensen is professor emeritus of political science at San Jose State and the host of Cree TV's Valley Politics. He's authored or co-authored nine books, including a leading text on California politics co-authored by Garrett Percival. He's been observing, commenting on, and sometimes engaging in local campaigns since 1971. Welcome, you two. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. So let's get right into this. I think the hottest question that uh, is all, at least on my mind, who do you predict will advance to the top two for San Jose mayor? Okay, well, it's a it's a hot race. There's a lot of money being spent, although not very visibly as yet. So we're going to see uh, a lot more uh, campaigning uh, pretty soon. We're only a couple of weeks away from the the actual election. Uh, right now, I'd say the top two candidates are Matt Mahan and Cindy Chavez. They've raised the most money. They've each raised about $800,000. They each have pretty vigorous campaigns. The other candidates are working hard, but they don't have the money uh, to compete significantly, I think, with Mahan and, and Chavez. Yeah, and I, I agree with Terry. I think those are the the two clear front runners, you know, money isn't everything in politics, but it does really help. And um, both uh, Chavez and Mahan have been raising a lots of it. And you're really starting to see in the closing weeks of the campaign that money starting to be spent now through mailers and even television advertising, which is very expensive to do. So, um, and it's really trying to engage with you know the voters who are going to turn out in this election, which are. It's going to be a relatively small group, but uh, they'll be able to better target those those voters through those those channels. So I think um, they're looking like the, the the leading favorites at this point. In addition to the money they've raised, which is really significant, as Garrick has said, uh, they've both got pretty strong rosters of endorsements, and they've both got pretty vigorous grassroots campaigns. I think, especially Mayhan, at least that I've seen. Uh, and just driving around one of my measures of local politics, and uh, Garrick will say this isn't political science, but is just looking at lawn signs. And I live in Cindy Chavez's supervisorial district, but there are a lot of Mayhan signs. And most of the signs are either Mayhan or Chavez. Hmm, it's very interesting. Now, Terry, I think that you could probably speak to this. Um, the city council is split, or it's, it's viewed as being split, uh, between officials backed by labor and business interests. How could that balance of power uh, between those two camps shift depending on how the mayor's race plays out? Well, it's the mayor's race and also the four city council races that are up. So right now, there's a six-vote uh, majority held by the Progressive or Equity Caucus uh, and five votes on the mayor's more pro-business-friendly uh, caucus. Uh, uh, if the mayor shifts, if one or two of those council districts shift, then you could see as much as an eight vote progressive caucus, uh, or they could slip down to five. So the, the, the balance on the council is really at stake in this election. You know, I'd like to touch on this as well with this business versus labor split. This is something that I feel like gets brought up a lot. I know at Spotlight, we bring this up, um, 
every so often to kind of keep things very simple. And of course, candidates are more than just, you know, business or labor. But Terry, could you talk about where this business versus labor split originates from and how that plays into San Jose politics? Well, first of all, Nick, yes, Spotlight does harp on that division, but you're not the only (laughs) ones. So do do all uh, all the other media. And I think that division is exaggerated to start with. Okay. If you look at what actually happens at the council, 95% of the votes are unanimous. Am I wrong, Garrick? No, that's about right. Yeah. Something like that. It's just, it's a guess, but mostly they, they're unanimous or the splits are, there's an odd split. There's a one vote minority 10 on a 10 to one vote, stuff like that. So it's a little bit exaggerated, but it's there, it's real. Uh, and it's evolved over time. It goes back, I think, to almost the seventies, uh, but especially the the nineties, uh, two things happened that really began to shift things around. And in, 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 in the olden days, when I was starting in local politics, uh, there were labor representatives on the chamber board of directors, uh, labor and cha- especially building trades folks, the more conservative unions. Well, the, <clears throat> the nature of the, the comp- I should say the composition of the South Bay Labor Council began to change in the 70s when it became legal for public employees to unionize, including Garrick and I are both members of the faculty union. That was illegal before 1976. So suddenly the balance in the labor movement begins to shift to public employees. And some of the old private sector industrial unions began to decline. So you have a shift in balance within the labor movement to public employee unions, which like to see money spent on public service. That's their job, that's our job advocating for that kind of spending, uh, and uh, also are just in general more liberal than the older industrial and building trades unions. So you get a shift in the labor movement, and then um, Amy Dean uh, became the, 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 uh, the, uh, the, the, the primary agent uh, of the South Bay Labor Council, came from Chicago, Alinsky, Saul Alinsky trained, old-fashioned organizer, and really began to shift the focus of what the union political agenda was from just the self-interest of union members to the interests of working families, people not union members, but people who are working at minimum wage jobs or, or less, uh, trying to get by. And so the labor movement became significantly more liberal because of these kinds of changes. And about the same time, the Chamber of Commerce is getting more narrowly focused on business interests and more conservative about it. And when Pat Dando became uh, CEO of the chamber, um, began doing the kind of really negative hit piece campaigns uh, against liberal candidates that that the chamber was doing up until 2020, they backed off now. So the chamber moved right and the Labor Council moved left and they both became very engaged in local politics and pushing candidates. And so then we get we get these divisions that persist. Mm, thank you for breaking that down. Yeah, sorry it was such a long answer. It's complicated, though. No, not at all. This is exactly what I, I hoped we could talk about. Um, now, some of these races this primary season feature well-known community leaders and politicos facing off against relatively unknowns. The mayor's race comes to mind. We have a, um, a relatively unknown retired uh, police sergeant, Jim Spence, as well as San Jose State student Marshall Woodmansey. Some of the city council races also have this makeup as well. I'm curious if either of you have... Um, any thoughts? Are there any dark horse candidates you could see maybe having a shot at staging an upset? 
Well, it's. I think it's really hard. It's really hard to predict these things. I mean, there's there's not a lot of at least public polling. Um, a lot of it is you know trying to gauge you know what's going on on the ground, which can also be very fluid. So it's it's hard to know. Um, but if there, there's one race, I think over in District Five, um, the, um, the Eastern District, um, there's of course been a lot of uh, what do we call sort of political dust ups, a lot of uh, accusations uh, back and forth between um, a couple of the candidates, uh, Rolando Bonilla and Peter Ortiz. Uh, but I think um, also keep an eye on uh, Andres Quintero, uh, who I think is running a, a, a good campaign, uh, has you know experienced the Elm Rock School District. Uh, has some experience in in staffing um, in in city hall, uh, and then of course there's Nora Campos, who's well known on on the east side of the city, who used to serve the district, was a member of the assembly, um, has been out of politics now, at least elected office for for um, a period. But so the, the, that that race, I think, is going to be a really interesting one to to watch. I don't see any dark horses with any with any shot at things. Those candidates in District Five, Eric's uh, Garrick's right. That's a really competitive district, but these are not unknown folks. They've been around. They've all been around for a while. They've held various offices, and so on. And, and you know what? A dark horse who can't raise money is just going to be a dark horse uh, forever. Uh, you got to raise the money. It's possible uh, if you think back to 2020 in District Six, Jake Tunkel kind of came out of nowhere as far as a lot of people were concerned. Uh, but he pulled together a coalition of people, uh, volunteers, and raised, raised enough money to be actually very competitive in that race, which was only very narrowly won by, by Dave Davis. So, Dave Davis. So it's rare, but it's possible. But I don't think it's happening this time. I see. And even, Terry, the, it's interesting you point out that race because I believe that that was 2020's most expensive race was between Tonkel and Davis. Um, well, it, that was a very expensive election, but yeah, I think you're right. That was the most expensive race. The, the, there were two city council races that went to a runoff in, in 2020 and altogether about $3 million was spent on those races, but almost 2 million by uh, political action committees. And we're seeing that kind of action again this time around. Garrick, I think this is more a question for you um, about the open uh, race for the Santa Clara County Sheriff's seat following Lori Smith's decision not to seek another term. Uh, I have a two-part question, but I'd like to ask, ask the first part first is, which candidates do you think will move to the top two uh, for the general and why? Right. Well, so this is, you know, uh, an interesting race in the sense that this is the first time that Lori Smith, who's been in office for, I think, seven terms, has decided not to run. Um, so she's, uh, you know, had a long, long term in office. Um, there's five candidates. I think four are what we might consider to be serious candidates um, and Colton who is, who is running is likely not eligible to be sheriff under California law because she doesn't have a law enforcement certification. I think the, the two leading candidates here again are probably as Terry was mentioning that the uh, candidates who have been able to raise money um, and have been able to campaign uh, in a, in a, in a sort of wide ranging fashion as you know, big County, a lot of voters out there, um, to, to target, uh, Kevin Jensen, who's, um, a, uh, I think has raised the most money in the race, but it's, it's neck and neck with the other candidate, uh, Bob Johnson. So we have Jensen and Johnson and that, that may confuse voters. I don't know. But, um, so I think those are probably the two leading candidates, but I think the, the d- dynamics of this race, I think you have four, uh, you know, Three of, the, three of the four candidates who are, who are, I think, would be considered to be serious candidates 
um, have a uh, connection with the sheriff's office or the county jail system, you know, have, have worked in the system and, and are really arguing that, you know, change can come from the inside. And they've been uh, uh, acknowledging and, uh, you know, the problems within the system pushing for change, but are you know pushing for it based upon their experience um, in in the office. Uh, Bob Johnson is really the candidate who's running as the outsider, sort of what Matt Mahan is doing as mayor, sort of running against you know the the, the, uh, the other candidates from the, from the outside. Even though Mahan, of course, is on the council, but anyway. Um, so uh, Bob Johnson is. Um, the police chief up in Palo Alto also has some experience in the sheriff's office down in Los Angeles County. And so he's arguing that, you know, he has the perspective from both police, municipal police forces and the sheriff's office. So I think those are probably the two leading candidates um, going into the into the primary. Nick, you you ask about the top two. But remember, in this race, if any candidate gets over 50 percent, they're elected. So in these nonpartisan local races, if you get over 50 percent, you're elected. I think Jensen has a shot at that. Garrick, the second part of this question um, still involves the sheriff's office. You know, I think you you mentioned a little earlier, and I, I we've covered this extensively, but there's been a lot of controversy with the outgoing sheriff um, from the way, you know, Smith's office handled inmates at the jail to allegedly handing out concealed uh, carry permits to friends and donors. I think whoever ends up as sheriff is really going to, they're already going to have an uphill battle given the conversation and the attention on law enforcement over the last few years. On top of all of this baggage, you could say that Smith is leaving behind. What will the new sheriff have to do in order to build community trust? Well, I think first and foremost, uh, convince people that the office is working for the public, for the and not and not for the person at the top. You know, and that takes a long. You know, that can take a long time. Um, voters, I think, are not automatically with a new person going to you know automatically believe that there's that there's real change. So it requires a lot of work in the community, reaching out to 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 voters, working out to groups who feel like they've haven't been listened to and haven't been served well by the current sheriff. I think uh, making um, trans, um, yeah, you know, accountability, transparency are two critical factors to, to kind of rebuilding that trust and be able to do that from the very beginning and saying that's, that's at the very top of their priority list uh, will be important. And then I think working within the agency itself where morale has been really poor for a number of years and either bringing in new people, uh, you know, in the mid to upper levels of the organization um, or providing, you know, additional training, additional kind of incentives to uh, change the way things have been done uh, in the sheriff's office. And so, you know, it's a lot of work both with the community, but also inside the agency, but also important in terms of communicating to the public about what kind of values um, are going to be leading the organization. And uh, so I think that's that's what we would be looking for. And I would just add, this is not normally within the purview of what sheriffs do, but dealing with mental health issues. Uh, so many of, of the inmates in the jail are, are have mental health uh, challenges. And that's so much a part of our homeless problem that this becomes something that the sheriff and the administrators of the jail system have to deal with working with the county supervisors. And one other thing we could add is uh, the new sheriff can certainly have a better relationship with the county supervisors than the outgoing sheriff uh, has had. So that that would help a lot. But dealing with mental health issues is going to be crucial. 
Definitely. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, Terry. And just, just so listeners are aware, the Board of Supervisors voted no confidence in Sheriff Smith that called for investigations into her office over the handling of inmates. Um, she's had a very contentious relationship with the Board of Supervisors, especially, Terry, as you mentioned, with the mental health issue. It, it Based on what she's told us in interviews and also just said in public, it sounds like she feels the county is almost looking for a scapegoat for the problem, that this is a problem bigger than her office, but it's been thrust upon her, and now all of a sudden it's her fault. She's right. It's bigger than her office, and there has been progress made while she's been sheriff, but we've got so much further to go. We're going to take a short break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. To be an entrepreneur, you have to have vision, confidence, and purpose. And like so many other business owners, you have to find resources that can help you through tough times. Comcast Rise changed my life. They put me in a unique space where I could scale on my own. More than 4,700 businesses have benefited from the Comcast Rise program. Apply today at ComcastRise.com for a variety of business, marketing, and tech makeovers on us. Keep rising. Hi, this is Lynn Balistrieri, San Jose Spotlight's Development Director. Like all our coverage, the Podlight is made possible by you, community members who understand the need for an unbiased, independent news source. Your fully tax-deductible gift will go directly to support our nonprofit newsroom. We hope that you will consider making a monthly or annual donation at SanJoseSpotlight.com so that we may continue to bring you the news that matters to you. Thank you. Um, I'd like to switch to another race now, uh, Santa Clara County Supervisor District 1. Uh, it's an open race with Mike Wasserman terming out. Uh, this district, to me, at least at the county level, seems to be the most impacted from the redistricting process, which happened late last year. Uh, district 1 previously had Los Gatos and Almaden Valley, which would have been considered you know, conservative strongholds. Those are no longer in District 1. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on you know, how will this impact this District 1 race, and also who do you see advancing in the primary? And maybe, Terry, is this another instance of you could see somebody gaining, you know, 50% of the vote or, or just slightly over 50% of the vote? Um, I, I doubt that's going to happen. This is a very competitive race. You're right. This is a, a, a dramatically changed district from what it's been for many, many years. Uh, traditionally, this has been the conservative district on the board. And Nick, when we say conservative, remember it's relative. This is Santa Clara County. It's not Alabama. Right. Yes. Uh, so, you know, Mike Wasserman is the conservative on the board. He'd be a liberal most other places. Uh, and so this is not going to, was never going to go to the to the far right. Uh, but it was a more conservative district with Los Gatos and Albaden. The new district has a higher Latino and Asian population. That's a dramatic change. Uh, it's, it's in general a more liberal district. That helps the progressive candidates in this race, uh, Claudia Rossi, Silvia Arenas, uh, Rich Constantine, especially. Uh, Johnny Camus uh, is, is the, the relative conservative in the race, former Republican, so he's, he's, he's fairly conservative. Um, Camus uh, lived in the Almaden Valley. He represented Almaden on the San, San Jose uh, City Council. So his base really was Almaden Los Gatos. That got taken away by redistricting. He's moved into the district. He's a vigorous campaigner. He's out all the time. He's been out. He started early. He's kept going. Uh, he's raised the most money. Uh, he's uh, he's uh, got a pretty impressive roster of endorsements, especially from South County political leaders, former mayors of Gilroy, uh, former, for, former county supervisor Don Gage, and so on. So I think he's a leading contender. And then it come, becomes uh, who among the other three is most likely 
to get sufficient votes to make the runoff. In that kind of race, you need maybe 25% of the vote would be would be sufficient. Uh, I've been impressed with Rossi. She's got a pretty vigorous uh, grassroots campaign. She's been accruing significant endorsements. Uh, Sylvia Arenas has a really strong base in, in, in the Evergreen Valley. That wasn't part of the district before. Uh, so that, sh- that shifts around. So I, I think it's going to be Camus versus Rossi or, or Arenas uh, in the end. Um, we'll see what Garrick has to say. Yeah, I, I think that's I, one point I think I was just going to emphasize, which I think is what to, Terry's pointing out in terms of the, the shifting of the district, but I, I, it's shifting a lot more votes to the city of San Jose so than, than the old district. So um, I think that does favor someone like Arenas, um, Rossi, you know, the, so given the, the greater diversity, the, the sort of slight shift in sort of ideological uh, characteristics of the district, um, Camus is a really interesting candidate. Um, as Terry said, you know, he's out there campaigning, working really hard. He did run for the state Senate a couple of years ago. Um, and I thought he was going to, um, you know, run rather strongly, but I think he finished around fit. So, uh, and there's some overlap, of course, between that district and, and this county district. But uh, like any good candidate, uh, you know, learn lessons from last time and, and, and is out there, again, doing a lot of the things you need to do to be really competitive. So I think it's, it'll be really, that's going to be a really interesting race to watch. So, but I agree. I don't think we're going to see anyone with over 50% in that race. Um, now, let's let's talk about the DA's race a little bit. There's a three-way race for county DA with incumbent uh, Jeff Rosen facing Deputy Public Defender Sajid Khan, as well as former Deputy DA Daniel Chung, who actually used to work in his office. Um, this is another two-parter. I'd like to start just by asking, how do you see this race playing out? Who do you see advancing? Where do you see things going in November? Yeah, well, I'll... I'll start with just a, a bit of uh, context in that district attorney elections uh, are often ones that aren't even contested. So that the fact that we have a contested race here, I think is an interesting Jeffrey Rosen, the current district attorney hasn't faced a challenger uh, since uh, he was elected. He of course defeated an incumbent as well. But um, the other thing to keep in mind is incumbent DAs when they do have a challenger, usually win, you know, so they have a very high rate of, of re-election. So in coming in to this race, Rosen has to be the favorite just because the way the district attorney's races generally play out both across the country, but also in California. But I think this race is really interesting in part because it's, it's part of a, a, a broader movement in uh, criminal justice politics in recent years and trying to um, reform is trying to get more progressive prosecutors elected. And there's been, I think, greater recognition about the power of a district attorney in the criminal justice system um, and their ability to charge offenders and have significant discretion over how to do that and the consequences of that, both for people who come into the criminal justice system, but also for uh, incarceration and, and a lot of attention on, on things like mass incarceration. Um, so uh, Sajid Khan is very much in part of that uh, reformist part uh, camp, if you will, someone who is really uh, challenging Rosen that he hasn't done enough to end mass incarceration, that there's, um, you know, big disparities, racial ethnic disparities in the criminal justice system in Santa Clara County. Although Jeffrey Rosen has been, I think, one of the 
few uh, district attorneys who's who's actually put out a lot of really good data about how bad the disparities are. So I think there's credit to him for for that, in which the public can judge what does it actually look like, what, the, what does the data look like. Um, and uh, so Sajid Khan, I think, is is running a, a good campaign, um, getting endorsements, uh, raising money. Um, you know, do I think that he's going to overtake Rosen? Probably not. But the fact that they were having a competitive race in the county, uh, I think, speaks to some of these larger debates and conversations that have been badly needed around this issue. So. Thank you for that. And you, you kind of touched on my, my next question, so I don't know how much more you'll have to say on this, but um, it, it relates to the progressive aspect of, of progressive DAs. There's been a lot of backlash, uh, or at least very vocal backlash with San Francisco's progressive DA, uh, Chesa Boudin. You know, Sajid Khan is also running as a progressive. He's championing some of these same ideas. Do you think that any of this anti-Boudin campaign could impact the race in Santa Clara County? Well, probably not directly, but I think that, you know, there's another recall election going on in L.A. County of George Gascon, who's also a reformer who's who's faced a recall right away. And some of these, you know, recalls we saw at the governor's race last year that there's, you know, organized groups who, you know, almost reflexively start a recall campaign as soon as someone is elected that they that they don't like because it's relatively easy to start that process right in, in, in California. But um, I do think that uh, really the challenge for criminal justice reform more generally, whether it's Sajid Khan or, or Cesar Boudin in San Francisco, is to really make a strong case for alternatives to, you know, strong, law, you know, strict law enforcement, punishment, jails and prisons, which we've used for many, many years in this country, um, to the detriment of, of communities of color. Um and, uh, you know, so to be able to convince that there's an alternative way to maintain public safety, which, of course, everyone wants lower crime, more public safety, more investments and in alternatives. And can that deliver on the promises that reformers have have been pitching and make a convincing case to voters for that? So I think that 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 is really the um, it's almost, you know, that's really what's at stake here for someone like Sajid Khan. So there's lots of evidence that other kinds of things work. Um, don't just rely on the police, but invest, as Terry was saying earlier, investments in mental health, investments in substance abuse, um, um, prevention, uh, and other kinds of tools. So that's, uh, so that's, I think, in the, the backdrop of this race. I think it's a bad time for a reformer to be running. People... People are very concerned about crime. That's what you hear about it. And, and they, I think there's a, a, a mood towards stricter enforcement uh, now, not towards reform. So it's a tough time, uh, maybe just bad timing for Sajid Khan uh, to run. And as Garrick said, uh, Jeff Rosen is, is no right-wing uh, DA. He's a reformer himself, but a more moderate reformer. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Every time you come to Gilroy Gardens, you'll make memories to last a lifetime. So make the most of this precious time when your kids are young and purchase value memberships so the whole family can enjoy unlimited, regular season visits through November 20th. If you buy now, everyone pays the kids' price of just $55. That's the very best price of the year, and it won't last long. Buy now at gilroygardens.org and come play at this magical place where fun grows on trees. Looking for a design agency that can take your brand to the next level? Design in Mind is a woman-led design agency that specializes in branding mid-sized companies, startups, and even nonprofits. Reach out to discover how a better brand can help move your business forward and book a consultation at designim.com. 
The last thing I'd like to touch on just before we get going is Measure B. This is a city ballot measure that, if approved by voters, uh, would change the timing of mayoral elections to take place in presidential election years. Garrick, you actually served on the city commission that recommended this to the city council that then, you know, put this on the ballot. Can you tell us a bit about the idea behind this and and changing the timing of mayoral elections? Why, Why do you think that this is important? Well, it's important for a number of reasons. I think fundamentally it's it's designed to try to create an election system for arguably the most important official in the city, the only city official elected at large by voters of all the city, um, to yeah, have the electorate mirror the population that actually lives in the city. Um, you know, for you know, there's sort of a long history, which we don't have time for today, but generally speaking, off-year elections or um, you know are designed to or isolated elections. These are not even in the gubernatorial years, but in the years that are even further <laughs> away from presidential elections than that, um, are designed really to uh, uh, suppress turnout. Um, and this goes back over 100 years. And so although we are sort of accustomed to having elections in California in gubernatorial years for mayors and city councils and so forth, um, it doesn't have to be that way. And, and so I think the commission really felt that this this move of moving the time of mayoral elections to presidential years was really um, important to changing the city charter that better matches the ideals and values of the 21st century, you know, a much more diverse San Jose than it was 100 years ago. And so with what Measure B would do if passed would shift the time of mayoral elections to presidential years beginning in 2024. And then future candidates would have to compete for votes, a much much more diverse electorate. Um, By itself, you know, lower participation is not necessarily bad. But if you have issues in which, you know, voters who traditionally don't vote as often um, have different views on issues or affected by government, government in different ways, than voters who do participate in at higher rates, then you you run the risk of public policy ordinances passed by the city council and the mayor of really not reflecting the views of the of the entire city, and so that's what this is designed to do. Um, estimates uh, uh, research that uh, my colleague uh, and spouse, Dr. Mary Curran Purcell and, and Terry Christensen, uh, who who uh, testified before this uh, Charter Review Commission. Uh, you know, our, our research suggests that it would increase turnout by about 30 percent uh, in mayoral elections. And that works out to be about 150, 160,000 additional voters that would participate in mayoral elections if, if, uh, if they were moved. Uh, and that's just based on current registration data, voter registration data. So th- those numbers would, of course, fluctuate some from, from year to year. But it's a significant effect. And by far... Uh, what that policy change w- is is would have a stronger effect on boosting participation than any other kind of change that could that could be adopted. Oh, well, I'll just add that uh, some of the opponents to this change have said moving it to a presidential year would mean the campaigns for mayor would be overshadowed by the campaigns for president. Well, there's some merit in that, but you know what? The campaigns for president don't do anything in California anymore. California's taken for granted. So we they're not buying TV time. They're not sending mail. We're taken for granted. I don't think that's a good thing necessarily, but it, do, it does mean the mayor's race is not going to be overshadowed by 
by the presidential race. People are interested in the office of mayor. Most people think the mayor is a really important office that holds a lot of power. Doesn't actually hold a lot of power in San Jose. The Charter Revision Committee failed to make that change or put that change forward or rather rejected uh, that change. But most people think the mayor is pretty important and I think they'll pay attention. It's not going to be an issue of competing with presidential campaigns. You know, uh, I meant you, you mentioned in my, intro, in, in, in my intro that I've been around for a long time. In 1971, when I started watching local politics, San Jose elections were completely separate from state and national elections. And we would get a voter turnout of maybe 20 percent, uh, maybe less. In 1974, they shifted the, the uh, elections to the gubernatorial election year concurrently with the gubernatorial election and turnout quadrupled. And now this step, this step is not going to quadruple turnout, but it's going to add another significant, maybe 30% to the electorate. And Nick, I guess one, one final point to make on that, you, you hear a lot of arguments that by removing the mayoral race um, from gubernatorial years will have a depressing effect on city council races. And the Charter Review Commission actually looked at that and um, not to get too technical here, but there's been a lot of research on that question. Um, and once you account for socioeconomic conditions and city council districts and several other factors, including the competitiveness of city council races, the presence of a mayor's race actually has no discernible effect on participation in city council races. So um, I think that's just an important point uh, to make. But also, too, at the very top of the ticket, the gubernatorial race, other uh, other uh, top of the ballot races can also shape participation. So, And those, of course, are fully independent from what happens at the city level. I mean, it, it makes sense to me that voter participation would increase in a presidential election year when there's more, not just local, but national attention on everything. And, you know, I, I also, I wonder if you could maybe respond to this too, Garrick. I know that a, a new uh, claim I've heard from opponents on this or why they have a problem with Measure B is that it could potentially give a mayor a 10-year term. What I think they mean by that is because of the way, if this gets approved and because we're in a mayoral election year now, I think what they're talking about is that whoever wins this year would get a two-year term, the system would change, and then they would be eligible to run, I think, for an additional term beyond what is normally allowed. Is Am I right on that? Well, right. I mean, they would, so there, there's no 10-year terms. There's a, there would be a two-year term, but and then that candidate, if they decided they wanted to run for, for a full four-year term, they could do so. Of course, they would have to get reelected uh, to serve to serve the next four years and then would have to get reelected again after that to, to, to serve the full 10. So, um, you know, and there's multiple points along the process that if the voters were not um, happy with the performance of the mayor, that they would have an opportunity to vote them out. Well, I would just add, we didn't have time to talk about the specific city council races. But as, I, as we said at the beginning, the balance on the council is at stake in those races. So keep an eye on those contests as well, districts one, three, five, and seven. Yes. And we have um, articles on that that listeners can check out on SanJoseSpotlight.com. Yes, you do. Just, just got to add that little plug in there. Uh, <laughs> Terry Christensen, Garrick Percival, thank you so much for joining me today. All right. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Nick. That's it for this episode of The Podlight, a podcast produced by San Jose Spotlight, the city's first nonprofit news organization dedicated to independent reporting. I'm editor Nick Preciado. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.